yesterday, I'm sure along with most of the earth, or at least in the America, most of the people, United States, uh, my wife and I went and saw Star Wars. And at one point in the movie, I, I left the theater and then came back in and did the typical, what did I miss? And so very quietly, it wasn't like, it just said, what did I miss? And she had to kind of inform me of a, of a key scene. Why would I do that? Why would I leave in the middle of a key scene? But it reminded me of that's what often happens if people uh, pick up the New Testament and they just start. Uh, we, if you've been here for any length of time, we encourage you to read through uh, books of the Bible beginning to end because that way you get the whole context. If you just go to a, to a verse, uh, you kind of miss what's before it, what's after it, and the bigger context. And so I needed to be caught up on what was going on. And, and the Bible's like acts of a play. Uh, it's like a two-act play uh, that if you start in the New Testament but you don't know about the Old Testament, you're missing a good bunch of information to lead you to the New Testament. And if you just read the Old Testament and you don't move on to the, to the New Testament, you miss the point of the whole Old Testament story. In fact, uh, Mark Dever wrote two books that uh, talks about this, talks about promises kept, uh, promises made, the message of the Old Testament, and promises kept, the message of the New Testament. And what he did early on in his ministry is he preached about the Bible in one sermon and then he walked through every single book of the Bible, uh, Genesis to Revelation. In one, he did each book in one sermon to give people an overview. And that's what we're doing here today. The Bible is like a two-act play. You can't just read the first 39 books. It, it, leads you, it leads you hanging, just like we left yesterday wondering what's coming next. And so you've got to enter into Matthew. And so today you're going to get 27 more reasons to get excited about Christmas 27 reasons to believe in Jesus, or to keep it simple, 27 reasons God has kept his promise. And you see a verse up there, Jeremiah 33, 14, that says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he, notice, he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There's a lot going on there because that doesn't just talk about the first advent. He, a branch, will spring up from David and he shall execute justice. There's Jesus who came at Christmas. But it lets you know that Jerusalem will dwell securely. Is that happening right now? No. And so even in that text, it's pointing to a second coming. And so what I wanted to show you before we dive into the New Testament is kind of a connection between the Old Testament promises made and the New Testament promises kept. First, promises made. You're going to get a people in a particular history that what's recorded in these first 39 books are true to life. This happened. We could go to Israel. We can see a rebuilt temple. You could talk to your Jewish friends and they would agree with you. All of this happened. This isn't just uh, stories in a book. This isn't just um, some literary devices thought up to keep us occupied in our minds. Adam was a real person. Adam lived on the earth and Adam walked the earth and he uh, gave birth and then the lineage came after him and then God chose Abraham. And there's this particular history through Abraham all the way through Israel and you get this nation of Israel that was then going to be the chosen people through which God would bless the earth. 
And along the way, God didn't just want a certain people. He wanted a people with a passion for holiness. So he gave, here is how you should live with me. Uh, in Leviticus, here's how you walk with me. He saves the people, and then he gives them rules to follow. And then they see that they can't keep those rules, and they're longing for something better. And there's this promise of hope. And what happens is Christmas cuts history in half. Uh, some people don't want to believe that. Some people want to call, uh, they, we, don't know, we no longer use before Christ and uh, in the year of our Lord or A.D., um, but what we do is we call it before the common era and after the common era. Call it what you will, but the whole world's calendar turned on Jesus Christ. Christmas cut history in half. And so the age of promise, those first 39 books, gives way to the age of fulfillment. And then in the New Testament, we see the promises kept. Everything that God had said, just like we looked at last week in Joshua, not one word failed, and not one word has failed in the New Testament, and not one word has failed up until this day. And we get a picture in the first four books of Jesus Christ. And then in Acts uh, through Jude, you see the church. It's expansion on earth and where it goes to the end in Revelation where Jesus will come with a new creation. And so in the first advent, we get things like the incarnation. Jesus becomes um, a man. We get the crucifixion that Jesus dies on a cross. We get the resurrection that on the third day he rose again, and then he was an eyewitness. He witnessed to 500 people, and then he rose again, the ascension. And then in the second advent, we're going to get things like the exaltation, like we will see today in Philippians 2. Every single knee on the earth will bow and every tongue will confess. It is a done deal. It's going to happen. It was a promise that was made. It's a promise that will be kept. And there will be the exaltation of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And then there will be the transformation of what? Of you and me. I will have hair again. It will be nice. Uh, Friday was our... 16th anniversary, looked at some pictures back then. I had, I mean, it was a full flow of hair. It was thick. It was, it will, it will be there again. So you may not recognize me in heaven. There will be my transformation. Now, it's just a joke. The idea behind that is one day, as Romans 8 says, we're being conformed into the image of Jesus. And so if he's predestined us, he will glorify us. He will transform us. And then he will transform this world. And why? Because to live in the presence of a holy God forever, we best be made perfect. And so what are we going to do? We're waiting for that to come. Until then, we celebrate Christmas every year as a way to renew our hearts, renew our faith, and say, yes, Jesus has come and he is coming. And so what we're going to do, if you were here with us last week, we walked through 39 books of the Old Testament. We didn't put a bunch of verses up there because it's 39 books. But I got home and people kept saying, man, you preached really fast last week. And I said, no problem. If you want more, we'll go verse by verse through these 27 books. Not all the verses, but we have a verse for each book. Beginning in Matthew, where Jesus is called to be the son of David where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That always will fascinate me. That will always humble me. He did not um, come and earn his way to be a king. He was the king. For we saw a star when it rose and we have come to worship him. That is the proper response to when you meet Jesus, you come to worship him. And in the book of Matthew, if you're following along with me, he's the son of David. He is the king. 
And what he's doing here is he's going to show you how he rules over his people. He does it primarily in Matthew through five big sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on Missions, the Sermon on the Kingdom, a lot of those in parables, the Sermon on the Church, and then the Olivet Discourse, the Sermon on the End, that Jesus Christ and the word exousia, authority, is used over and over and over. By what authority do you do this? At the end of the book, all authority has been given to me. He is the king, and he rules over his people. And then we go to the book of Mark, that he is not only a king, but he's a certain kind of king. He is a servant, that he's going to enable his people. In Matthew 10, or excuse me, Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Catch that? He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Just listen to how one pastor talks about Jesus' coming to earth. In a few minutes, you'll see some words on the board, but listen to this. Not quite yet. Jesus expects his disciples to be radically different from the way people ordinarily act. They are to serve each other and unbelievers. In that service, they are to drink the cup of whatever suffering it will cost, and it will cost. But if that were the only message of Christianity, it would, be, it would not be good news. There, there would be no gospel. I need more than for someone to tell me what I should do and should be. I need help to be and to do. Amen? This is why Jesus says what he says in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What a horrendous mistake it would be if we heard Jesus' call to be the servant of all in verse 44, which is just before this. It says, the first must be servant of all as a call to serve him. It is not. It is not a call to learn. It is a call to learn how to be served by him don't miss this. This is the heart of Christianity. This is what sets our faith off from all the other major religions. Now look upon the screen. Our God does not need our service. Amen? Can I get an amen? Our God does not need our service, nor is he glorified by recruits who want to help him out. Our God is so full and so self-sufficient and so overflowing in power and life and joy that he glorifies himself by serving us. He does this by taking on humanity and seeking us out and then telling us that we did not, he did not come to get our service, but to be our servant. Here's a general truth to ponder and believe. Every time Jesus commands something for us to do, it is his way of telling us how he wants to serve us. Let me say it another way. The path to obedience is the place where Christ meets us as our servant to carry our burdens and to give us his power. This is crucial. When you become a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, you do not become his helper. He becomes your helper. You do not become his benefactor. He becomes your benefactor. You do not become his servant. He becomes your servant. Jesus does not need your help. He commands your obedience and offers his help. Christmas, he came to serve, not be served. He came to help us, and this is huge, do everything he calls us to do. That is a radical transformation on how you approach your Christian life. That is why I say in your handout, 
he enables his people. In Luke, Jesus, the Son of Man, it says in 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set, a liberty, the, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's Luke 4.18. And in 19 through 20, he says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That he's going to identify with the blind, the lame, the weak. He's going to come and save them. And in verse 20, he identifies with his people. And he rolled the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all, all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What's he going to say now? And you see in this next verse, the glory of Jesus. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's mind-blowing. What if I came to you today and I read a piece of the Bible and I said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. You would all run and say, never go back to that church. You would fire me and some of you would probably come tackle me and that's good for you. Only Jesus can say, hey, I've come to identify with you and then Jesus didn't leave it at that. And the book, the Bible tells us Jesus was the Son of God in John 10, 30, when he says, I and the Father are one. And they knew it. They picked up stones to stone him, that he rules over the world. And so if you put those together, uh, I don't have a slide on this, but you get, if you work backwards through John, you get the God, man, servant, king, right? John, he's the Son of God. Luke, he's the Son of man. Mark, he's the servant. Matthew, he's the king. The God-man, servant, king. But another way to look at this, this is all about King Jesus. And so in Matthew, you could see he gave, he gave us a lineage and his license, that Jesus has the authority. All authority has been given to me. And in Mark, he shows us his action and his attitude. He, it, was a, it was a book mostly, if Matthew's mostly words, Mark's mostly of works. He immediately goes to work. And his attitude, just like he said in 1045, I came not to be served, but to serve. And then in Luke, the Son of Man, he identifies with us. And it's the most intimate of his books because we see his birth. We see him relate to all different types of people. And then in John, we see that Jesus was through seven signs and seven statements saying, I am the one who is sent. I am divine. And he, as he prays in John 17, Father, glorify your servant that he may glorify you. He ends that book with one verse that links us to Acts. In John 20, 21, he says, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And there you see in the book of Acts, Acts is not so much about what we did as a church to expand, but it's about what the Holy Spirit did through his people to expand the church on earth. And you see in Acts 1.1, you even see Luke telling you that. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He didn't finish in John 30, or excuse me, John 21.30. That was all he began to do and teach. And then he was going to carry it out through the power of the Holy Spirit in this organization called the church that he sends his people to build his church. Those are the first five books of your New Testament. And then we get into these letters, 13 of them from Paul, the rest from general epistles. And then we end with the book of Revelation. 
In Romans 1, you see Jesus. He is our propitiation for all have sinned, all of us, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And here is a big theological word, but it's important in Romans 3.25 that Jesus is our propitiation. It says in 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That means Jesus, like we learned in Sunday school, not today, but last week, that Jesus came to die in our place as a substitution, that God was wrathful against all sinners, and because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he looks away from us now. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins, that Jesus saves us from God's wrath. God's wrath now turns away because he looks at Jesus, and then he sees us. You and I are not guilty. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to hear it every single day. You live with heaping amounts of guilt. You, you live in the past. I've been there. I've done that. It is time. If you have not, let it go. You're not guilty. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've bowed your knee to him, you are not guilty. Yes, but I did all these. You're not guilty. I have this bad hit. You're not guilty. Your history, your past sins, all to this point is done. It's taken care of at the cross. Will you sin again? Probably. Most assuredly. But he paid for it at the cross. In love, God saved us from himself in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, he is the power and he is the wisdom. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ It describes him here, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Just like we learned in Mark, so we learn here. He is the one that gives us the mind. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. He is the one that gives us the power. You and I cannot live the Christian life on our own. This is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps faith. This is Jesus Christ who did what nobody else could do. Now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, lives within us. And so, rightly, in 2 Corinthians is he called, do I call him a new creator? For we proclaim him, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For he who said, in verse 6 of chapter 4, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Matt, in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, wonderful word, verse, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, if you're here today and you're in Christ, this is what the Bible says. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do not live in your past. Learn from it. Don't live there. You're a new creation. And so when you're struggling, or better yet, when you're sinning with something, say, I am a new creation. This is not the way I should act. God has called me to something better. In fact, Galatians, if we're following down, he has freed us. It says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He has set you free. There is not one sin, there is not one issue that should enslave you. You have been free, only don't use your freedom for the flesh. He has made you free, beloved. You're free. But this one sin just won't. 
you are free. You have died to sin. You're alive to God. The chains of sin no longer control you. You're free because of Jesus Christ. And not only that in Ephesians, he is the powerful ruler. He is the one that rules over not only the church, but the world. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. And what did he do? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And what comes from that? Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. So you look across the land, you look across our country, you, you, if you follow any, any of the news or you see there's a big debate going on, who's going to make it in this house, who's going to run in this house, who's going to be the next president, what's going on overseas and across the world, far above all that. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus Christ reigns. And in verse Uh, 22 here, you're going to see, and he put all things under his feet and he gave him head over all things to the church. So everything, all authority has been given to me. It's under his feet. That means he he sits on top of it and he gave him as head over all things to the church, but he's going to work through the church. That's why I always talk about the church. That's who Jesus works through is the local church. What is the church? It's his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Now, did Jesus do this with an attitude uh, that was pompous or conceited? Absolutely not. In Philippians, he is the humble victor. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourself. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Have this mind, what is that? A humble mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and here's a key point, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being being born in the likeness of man. Here's what Jesus did for us. He was born in the likeness of man, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What is the result of this? That Jesus Christ didn't come with an attitude. He came with humility. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Just hit me, reading through this verse again. He has bestowed on him. It's already, it's a done deal, but it'll be played out in the future so that At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so you hear of one who is coming here. You're following your sheep. He took God's wrath away. We are no longer guilty. He gave us the power to live. We are a new creation. We are absolutely free. We're empowered by Jesus. And we're empowered by a humble victor. Victory is his. That's why I love, because I was raised Baptist every Easter. My wife would challenge me on this, but I want to sing victory in Jesus every Easter. I'd like to sing it every week, but that would get old. Because our victory is in Jesus. He's my Savior forever. And so Colossians then comes right after that and shows us this picture 
of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And if you keep going on in that passage, you see a few things. For by him, this is huge, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Wow. You mean to tell me the angelic realm and things we can't even see were created by Jesus? Yes. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So what, what does that leave us in Colossians? And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I am standing up here preaching a message of the New Testament to you because he is upholding it. And if he wanted to take me, he has all rights to do that. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And you got three more verses, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be found preeminent. Jesus is the preeminent one. That's what the book of Colossians is all about. He is the one to whom we look. We don't look to philosophy. We don't look to pragmatism. We don't look to legalism. We don't look to mysticism. We don't look to all the isms and spasms out there. We look to Jesus. And in 19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You mean to tell me that through the cross, Jesus did much more than just save mankind? Yes, because it's not just about mankind. It is about this entire world. Creation groans and waits his longing that all things will come back to where they should be. And Colossians 2.9. He wanted, that babe, I don't know if it's he or she, wanted to be in the service, I know. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That we, oh, and, and we can't go too, we can't go back too far. Oh, if I just would have lived at the time of Jesus. Because Jesus said even in the Gospels, blessed are those who do not see me and believe. So can't go, but how, it, you would have seen him bodily. There is God incarnate. For us. And that happened because of Christmas. And so that's who he is. That's what we see. Well, what about the future? Well, he is the deliverer in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there were two wraths. There was the wrath to come upon every sinner that doesn't believe. And there is this wrath coming that he will deliver us. We will not partake in it. He will get us out, just like he got Noah uh, out of the flood. He got, he got Lot out of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, so he will get us out. Jesus, he delivers us from the wrath to come. He is our great expectation, more than Pip could ever think or imagine. And you know what he's going to do when that time comes? Second Thessalonians 2.8 says this, And then the lawless one will be revealed. And this is... I know we have some kids in here, but this is what the Bible says. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Whew. It's not going to be in fight. You know, we, we see these big, you see Lord of the Rings, you see Star Wars and these big battles. Whew. Done. In 
he'll bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He comes, it's over. It's anticlimactic. It's just this big buildup. You're like, here comes Jesus. Be done. It's over. He will destroy evil. He'll win the final battle. You, you heard it here. You could go to Revelation. We win. You look at the news. You know, Christianity is not really effective. We win. You hear some people even within the church. The church must do these 17 things. If you do these 17 things, the church must change or die. Let me give you 17 things. We win. The gates of hell will not prevail over the church. We win. First Timothy, bring it back down a little more personal. He is the sinner's savior. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. Christmas happened so that he could die. Jesus came into the world that he may save sinners through his death. And Paul said, I'm the worst. And the more we walk with the Lord, the more we understand God's holiness and our sinfulness, the more we will identify with 1 Timothy 1.15 and we'll say, we're the worst. We won't say, you're the worst. Or you're, you'll say, I'm the worst. Because God did this for me, and if I sin against him, I'm the worst of all sinners. That's what I think Paul was thinking there. He was the worst because he had a close walk with God and he recognized when I turn from God, every time I turn from God, it's the worst thing that can happen. Christmas happened so that he could die. <clears throat> and he not only saves us, but he abolishes death. Second uh, Timothy 1.10, that he gives us eternal life, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, there's Christmas, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Very often you see verses that are mixed, Christmas and Easter, Christmas and Easter. And Jesus will abolish death. But, Judd, I'm going to die, and so am I. And we're going to be buried, and we're going to be put into the ground. Right? Because we believe in burial, because we believe the resurrection. It's a great picture. But we're trusting Jesus to come back and get our bodies. That one day... Uh, I'm going to be on my deathbed. And I'm going to close my eyes in faith going, I trust this word. And I'll be raised never to die again. Death will be abolished. It's a done deal. What does that do to us, Titus? That he is our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. That's what they call him. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, that he came and he's coming again. This deals more with the second advent. And to purify him for himself, people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, that he's our blessed hope. And if you're following on the handout, I write, we are owned and empowered to do good deeds that meet pressing needs. That's another phrase from there. But we are his possession. We were bought with a price, says Corinthians. Our bodies are not our own. I am not my own. I don't get to dictate what I do. I was talking to some men the other day at a men's study, and I said, I think, this is just 
me speaking from what I've studied in scriptures, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think the key, one of the keys, if not the key reason, while there's trouble in the world, is this. People do not submit to authority. To which one of the wise guys said, that's why Satan was kicked out of heaven. As if to say to me, you're not that brilliant. It's like, thank you. But the point is, I'm not my own. I am owned by Jesus. And every human being in the world was created by God. So they owe their maker. And it's through him that we are now zealous for good works. We're not zealous for good works because we do good works thinking, oh, if I do enough, then maybe... You know, God will look upon me and go, man, you, 51 to 49, it was close, Rumley, but you're in. He says 100%. This is who you were. This is who I look at you through. Come on in. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now we are zealous for good works. We're empowered for good works. Thus in Philemon, he is the grace giver. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That book is incredible. It's a book on forgiveness, and the word forgiveness is never used. Twice in there, we refresh others' heart. Paul says, refresh my heart. Refresh others' hearts. Because we're forgiving people. Because we have that blessed hope that we're zealous for good works, that we can extend forgiveness. Hebrews tells us that he is the superior one. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Better is used 10 times in the book. Jesus is superior. He's greater than the Old Testament types. In Mark Dever's book, his chapter is called Stick with the Best. I love that. Stick with the Best. We are all, if you're an American, you've been brought up in a culture that has told you that's good for about a year or six months, but then you've got to get something better. That's just what it is in life. You can get a better education if you do this. You can get a better home if you do this. You can get a better interest rate if you do this. Everything's about being better, and you're not there yet, and ergo, therefore, you need to buy my product. Not with Jesus. Stick with the best. We don't need a better religion. We don't need a better um, philosophy of life. We don't need a better psychology uh, when it comes to certain issues that hit us in the, in the heart, in our personal lives, our family lives, church. We don't need anything better. His name is Jesus. We've been brainwashed to think we need better. The shampoo I'm using now is not as good as what they're going to come out with next year. And so they're going to, quote, increase the size and increase the price just so I go out and get it. Shampoo. He used a shampoo illustration in his sermon. I did. Jesus Christ is better. He's better than any product on the market. He's better. So let us get through our head. We don't need bigger. We don't need better. We need Jesus. And he is called in James 2.1, the Lord of glory. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
that our faith works because of him. The Lord of glory. Glorious means you're to display the goodness and worth of God to the world. And we can do that. As James says, our faith works because of him, Jesus, the Lord of glory. That's how we should hold our faith in him. No partiality. We should go out and we should serve and serve. It works. Speaking of serving, 1 Peter, Jesus is the chief shepherd. He was foreign. I just want to show you in 120. Uh, we had a compass on 30, Thursday night, and one of the men memorized 113 through 21, and this verse just jumped off when he was uh, doing it. He did it word perfect, by the way. It was wonderful to hear. And then this verse, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Whoa. But was made manifest in the last times. Manifest in the last times. Christmas brought the last days. Paul talked about the last days. The last days don't begin sometime when there's corruption in the Middle East. The last days began when Jesus came to the earth. He was foreknown. He was manifest in the last days for your sake. What did Jesus do while he walked the earth? And what does he do now? Look at 5.4, 1 Peter 5.4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He is the chief shepherd. Jim, myself, Ben, Ben, he's an under, we're under shepherds. He is the chief shepherd. People ask me, well, what do you do? I'm the lead pastor of Eagle Bible Church. What does it mean lead pastor? Well, I'm not the senior pastor. I'm not. I'm not the senior minister. I'm not. He's senior. He, he's, the, he's been here longer. He's been doing it longer than I am. So he's the sen- he is the senior pastor of Eagle Bible Church. I'm just the lead pastor, and the elders are under shepherds. He's not only a pastor, but Second Peter says he is a promise keeper. Then the Lord knows how to rescue you. The, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That the Lord knows how to rescue, and he will keep his promise. He will keep his promise to rescue us. We can depend on him. Hopefully, as we serve here, as we serve one another as a body, as the churches serve each other in the community, we can depend on each other. Amen? But there may come a time when we fail one another. He will never fail you. In 1 John, uh, there's lots to talk about it in Jesus there, but I wanted to talk about something that you, you may have missed. The le- very last book, verse of the book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He is the idol smasher. He is our true love. We should love nothing more than him. And if you say, Jesus, I don't want to go after this idol anymore. Take it from me. I assure you, he will do it. If by faith you pray that prayer, he may not do it immediately, but he will take it. Too many of us, I read a great article a couple of weeks ago, live in this idea that we'll ne- there are certain sins we'll never get over. That's just not true. If you would have seen me in college, you wouldn't want me to be your lead pastor. But Jesus is a good God. He's a good shepherd. He's my chief shepherd. He's a promise keeper, and he can smash idols. But those things that happened in college, by God's grace, amen, and for God's glory, do not rule my heart anymore because of Jesus Christ. 
And in 2 John, he is love in the flesh. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. There are deceivers. There were deceivers then in John's time, and there are deceivers now. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They don't think Christmas is real. If you don't believe it, just go on the Zephyr and listen to a radio show from a couple weeks ago. Oh, there were lots of Jesuses around. I mean, how do we know? You just, you're a deceiver, and you would not want people to know the truth, and it really comes down to this, and I may have to say this on the next one. It really comes down to you don't want to submit to authority, to the one who came to save you from your sin. The ones that go out and deceive, they are called the Antichrist. And so 2 John is about a book about truth and love. Truth and love. And in the Christian church today, we want to fall off the wagon and go way too much to love. Well, how can this, I mean, we've got to show love. Or we go way over here and we're just cold. We're just, this is the truth. We're robotic. John Stott says this, Christian love is founded on Christian truth. And we shall not increase our love by decreasing the truth. So Christian fellowship should be marked equally by love and truth. Our love what everybody wants to talk about is love, love, love. Great. Let's talk about love. I love the fact that we want to talk about love. But let's talk about it with truth. Our love is soft if it's not strengthened in love. That should be in truth. And our truth is hard if it's not softened in truth. Meaning, you have to hold up both. You cannot just talk about the love of God without talking about the truth of God. You have to hold up both. Scripture commands that we love each other in truth and hold the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. But we speak the truth. Leads us to 3 John. My verse for 3 John is Mark 9.41. And you're thinking to yourself, that's strange. Mark 9.41 in 3 John. Go home today. This is your homework assignment. Read the letter of 3 John. It's only 13 verses. Jesus is never mentioned. <gasps> Take it out of the scripture. God's never mentioned in Esther, and we love that book too. But what does 3 John allude to? He talks about being a gracious host. Bring those in who have gone out for the sake of a name. There's your closest thing you get to is Jesus. The sake of the name. They've gone out for the sake of the name. Take care of them. And so you see in Mark 9, 41, John is just writing a letter. He puts love with skin on it. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Third John is basically just living out that verse. Which brings us to Jude, the last of the New Testament letters. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality and deny. And that one last title for Jesus, second to last, our only master and Lord. He's a good master. Are you saying he's a master? Is that the word I'm thinking, master? It is. He's a good master. And whatever he tells us to do, we should do it. We should have a deep faith to know that he only and always has our best at heart. Yeah, but sometimes it's so hard to do the right thing. You can never go wrong doing 
what is right. And so how does the New Testament end? It ends in 22, 13, actually we'll begin in 12. Behold, starting in the book of Matthew and ending in the book of Revelation, it would be a do this on your own. Students, you're off for two weeks. Trace the word behold through the entire New Testament. I will assume, I haven't done this myself, each time it's to draw your attention to something magnificent. Joseph was ready to put away Mary and do it quietly. Behold, an angel said, no, no, no. Hold on. You're a righteous man, Joseph. Trust me. Behold, I am coming soon. You have to hold that soon. You know, you and I think soon was yesterday. To, one, to God, one day is like a thousand years. And so he's coming soon. Here's the best way I've learned how to say that. In light of eternity, he, you know, if this is eternity, and you can't do eternity like that, right? I need the little, whatever those marks are, infinity marks on the end. But he's coming soon. What's he going to do? He's going to bring my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. Here's what he says, and here's how the Bible ends. I am the Alpha, that is the beginning, the first Greek letter, and I am the Omega, that is the end, the last Greek letter. I am the first, I'm the last, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. Several times in the book of Revelation that's mentioned. Sometimes it's God the Father here for sure. It is Jesus Christ, his Son. And so we can live in hope, we can live with peace, we can live by faith, and we can live to love. Verse 27, and on the front table you can get the first 39. There are 66 reasons why we should get excited about Christmas. 66 reasons we should believe in Jesus. And I put this picture up here to end it because it's just a, the face of a boy. And so often we had yeah, Jesus came as a as a kid and we, you know, if we were doing a Christmas play, we'd we may get somebody's baby or we'd have a little plastic baby. But but that to me I kind of captured it. God eternal became a child so that through his life, death, and resurrection, we would become the children of God. Paul Tripp. We could give more reasons, but I think 66 is enough.